In the lead up to 2008, the only thing that was fragile was the housing market. Now, what is fragile? Well, moral hazard has been passed around for 14 years. Now we've had zero, zero interest rate policy for the majority of that time. Now everything's fragile. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Folks, good day to you. Welcome back into Blue Collar Bitcoin. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, talked to macro and rates analyst Joe Consorti from the Bitcoin layer. Needless to say, there is a ton going on these days, and we covered an extensive number of subjects in this hour, including the recent banking crisis, the state of the commercial real estate market, looming recession, what role Bitcoin plays in all of this, and Joe's left nipple. You can see all of Joe Consorti and Nick Batia's outstanding and ongoing analysis at thebitcoinlayer.com. Ladies and gents, if you don't have a block clock in your home, well, you simply don't have any taste. Stop flirting, give in to the temptation, and go all the way with one of these bodacious works of art. If somehow you're unfamiliar with the block lock, it's a gorgeous e-ink digital display art piece that allows Bitcoiners to track key price metrics like price, hash rate, node count, the next halving date, and much more, all in a tasteful and aesthetically pleasing manner. My Block Clock Micro looks so damn good that my wife allows it in our living room. It also serves as an excellent orange pill conversation starter. You can get select discounts on all of CoinKite's badass security and fun devices at our affiliate link down in the show notes, and get 5% off the cold card with promo code BCB. That's promo BCB. The Bitcoin conference is going down in Miami May 18th to the 20th, and you don't want to miss out. This three-day event is the ultimate destination for anyone looking to stay ahead of the curve and or work in this industry. Industry day tickets to the Bitcoin conference are still available for those who want to network with like-minded professionals and learn from the top experts in the field. And for those who want the ultimate VIP experience, the Whale Pass is the way to go. This pass gets you exclusive access to private events and main stage speakers. Use code BCB23, that's BCB23, to get 10% off all types of tickets. We will see you in Miami. Joe Consorti on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, last minute. Uh, Josh is headed to Mexico on a vacation we felt like we were a little macro thin with all of the uh, unfolding shit show uh, globally. So we uh, pulled Joe here out of the bullpen last minute, and we're asking you to basically close this game out perfectly. Mm. Um, and it's been wonderful pre-recording, too. We've talked about cocaine. We've talked about Joe nipping out. He's actually, speaking of casual, Josh, like he took blue collar yeah. really literally because he went that shirt. He went with his fucking workout shirt where I'm almost it, seeing that's that's left nipple. That's right? almost or is that nipple. right nipple. Is it reversed? That's left nipple. That's almost like uh, you guys seen the South Park episode where the cable guy has a shirt that has two little pouches that rip off so people can see his nipples. Yes. And he rubs his nipples and tells people, try and cancel cable. Try. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dear Lord, for anyone for anyone still listening after that, kudos to you. Yeah. Well, they're, they're kind of <laughs> used to it at this point. Uh, they're engaged now. I love now it. Now they're engaged. Yeah. I've got my... Uh, I got some big brain macro lubrication juice out here. It's a uh, orange door IPA out of Evanston, Illinois. Mm, Shout out yeah. to uh, Sketchbook Brewing. 
It's definitely too late for cocaine. That's true. Yes, yeah. yes. Stimmies in the morning, and then you know when when the when the nighttime comes, it's time to get that blood alcohol content up. <laughs> here, here, here's the here's the problem though, Josh, because I, I see you're you're drinking as well. I'm playing coy. When we have these macro discussions, which we love, macros kind of are even though we're, we don't can't claim to be experts, we we love these conversations and we've been deeply interested in them for a decade or more. They are at the the peak, if you will. They they, they stretch us in terms of our ability to hang and 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 keep mm-hmm. up. And alcohol doesn't help my brain work, although it makes conversations more fun. So you may have to do some heavy lifting here, Joe. Mm, yeah. yeah, for sure. No worry. It's it's all about the viewer experience, right? And so I, I suppose the hosts of the podcast inebriating themselves it it allows it brings the bar lower for the for the listening experience. And so now I'm forced to explain it even simpler, yeah. which is which is good because I need to work on that too. I found that explaining things simply is something I definitely need to work on. So this is going to be an exercise in that explaining complicated shit simply is one of the most difficult things you can do. And oh, yeah. it's really an exercise in how well do you really understand it? You know, are you going to baffle people with bullshit or do you, can you make it dumbed down enough for a regular idiot to understand and comprehend? That's and right. that's what we're going to find out today, Joe. Can you do that? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, you know, fourth, fourth quarter, um, you know, uh, definitely last minute late replacement, but Hey, uh, you know, uh, coming off the bench and I, I got to give it my all if coach is going to give me any more playing time. <laughs> uh, I believe in you. Um, first of all, let's before we get into the the meat and potatoes here. Who are you? Introduce yourself to the audience, and then we'll we'll get into the the good stuff. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So my name is Joe Consorti. I'm a recent graduate from uh, the University of Vermont Grossman School of Business. I don't know why I named the business school, uh, but up there I studied uh, general business administration with a concentration in finance and then economics. So I got two degrees. And um, I got the the economics uh, degree by accident. I took st- so many econ classes um, that I inadvertently got it. But uh, either way, uh, I ran you know through through college. I uh, I came to discover Bitcoin after we got sent home from COVID. Um, it was like October of that year, and I'd become pretty jaded towards like the man because. I got sent home during spring break um, during 2020 and I wasn't allowed to get my stuff. So for spring break, I packed an overnight bag because, you know, it's spring break and I wasn't allowed to go back and get my computer or anything or any of my clothes. We weren't let back into the dorms. So I was pretty jaded. And then um, towards authority in general, then my friend Tyler LaRoche, who works at Bitcoin Magazine, sent me two articles, um, The Masters and Slaves of Money by uh, Breedlove and The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by Vijay. And uh, I read the both of those. I, I love them. I thought they were fantastic. And um, you know, at, at this point, it, basically before I got into what I'm doing now, which is this markets analyst position, I ran uh, two businesses uh, during college. Both of them were painting businesses. Um, and so as I was learning more about Bitcoin and becoming more interested in that, um, and of course, you know, all throughout uh, the, my my college years, um, studying markets pretty. Uh, Pretty not religiously, I suppose, but um, you know the the next rung down, I guess, in terms of how ardent you are about markets. All the while I was doing that, I was I was researching Bitcoin. I was running these businesses, and I did I did this painting business for two summers. I did uh, six figures the first summer, and then I did a quarter million dollars the second summer in revenue, not profit, not definitely not profit. And um, I was profitable, but not to that tune. And uh, it, it came down to okay, I really love this Bitcoin thing. I believe this to be a solution to many of the woes in our current uh, global economy and financial system. 
what am I going to do this next summer? I have the ability to either do another year, do another summer of this business, but uh, do do it even larger, right? And I figured that my time would be much better spent um, dropping that entirely, trying to graduate a year early, and then uh, analyzing markets and, and making that my job. And so that's what I did. I graduated uh, a, a year early. I graduated this summer, this last summer, and uh, basically spent all my time for the first and second semester of my final school year, which was my junior slash senior year, um, publishing my analysis on Twitter just independently in hopes of uh, finding a job. And uh, eventually it worked out. Nick Batia, whom I, I don't know if he's been on the show before. I, I know he has. It's fantastic. Yeah, we, we you guys interact uh, a whole lot with Nick on Twitter. Um, and he found me on uh, LinkedIn via mutual friend, Matt Snow. Nick was looking for a research associate to turn the Bitcoin layer, which is now this big neon sign behind me. It didn't used to be worthy of a big neon sign. It was just Nick's uh, sort of uh, every so often hobbyist markets publication into a genuine bona fide markets research provider. And the first step in doing that was to get an analyst on board and right place, right time. Um, I was the uh, I was the one that was referred to Nick. And uh, here we are today. Now, my job is to be in front of a computer screen and uh, analyze markets, break them down simply. Damn. Um, a couple of things from that. You, you kind of identified one of the leading causes of jumping or falling into Bitcoin, which is intelligent, jaded disposition, and distrust for authority. I think those three characteristics cause people to fall down this rabbit hole a little quicker than others would otherwise. I'm curious though, from your um, uh, degree, what, how much of that did you feel like you had to unlearn when you were kind of diving down the Bitcoin rabbit hole? Was a lot of this hard or difficult to learn or did you have a lot of weird situations where you're like, this doesn't make sense because they taught me something completely different in those classes or how did that all balance in your head as you learned? Thankfully, it wasn't because when it came to my econ degree, there are certain subjects that I learn and I understand that the reason I'm learning this is for the class exclusively. It's conceptual. I'm not going to actually fold this into my markets framework. And thankfully, when it came to econ, like the way that it was taught in school and the way that most econ textbooks are structured, uh, a lot of it is just conceptual, purely the theoretical, like math. I didn't fold a lot of it into my markets framework because of how sort of conceptual and like high level and theoretical it all was. Right. Um, it, so I, I'd like to thank my teacher, I suppose, for approaching econ that way when I was initially being taught it. Um, so thankfully, when I when it came to Bitcoin, I didn't have to unlearn a whole lot, right? You know, you go into econ in college and you're learning, uh, you know, labor supply, labor demand. Uh, you're learning all about the Phillips curve. You're learning all about the Taylor rule and all these other things um, that you know, uh, uh, sort of stick to your brain for a period and then you lose them, thankfully, because I certainly wasn't planning on becoming an economist. I just took the classes because the concepts mm. were pretty easy to grasp. Um, so thankfully, when it came to Bitcoin and, you know, I, I came to learn about Austrian economics, um, then it, it, it sort of, uh, I didn't have to unlearn a whole lot, thankfully. Okay. I guess the more direct question would have been how much Keynesian theory did you get taught versus a lot did you get it was any exposure to it was 100 okay. uh up at uva especially up at the university of vermont uh you know in in communist china up there in vermont um <laughs> it was uh, it was 100 keynesian for sure the the thing i love joe about bitcoin in general and the bitcoin ethos is just how enormously meritocratic it is like it does not care how old you are, how much experience you have. It cares about what your output is and how valid and well-researched your perspective is. 
Um, we've been we've been reading a lot of what you and Nick have been putting out, and it's impressive. I mean, the two of us are blown away that someone your age can have this good of a grasp. I guess, Josh, that's the advantage of having no kids and no commitments whatsoever is you can literally just yeah. study econ all day, every day. And apparently in excess of cocaine. I mean, that yeah, exactly. certainly contributes as well. Coke and unlimited time. Uh, it's a potent <laughs> combination. That's right. That's right. That's like two of the three pedestals that you need to live a healthy life. <laughs> exactly. Don't ask what the third is. You know, as we alluded to, you came to mind immediately just because you are totally entrenched in this stuff, breathing and sleeping it. So to kick off our macro discussion here, uh, I'm going to start out with what I think is a super sophisticated, refined, cultivated question about the global <laughs> economy, which is what in the fuck is going on, Joe? That's a tremendous question and an even better starting point, uh, I would say, for a discussion. Um, you know, well, there are several things going on. Uh, on all, I guess I'll start like in the middle of last year, I suppose. In the middle of last year, you know, call it, we'll, we'll call it like June, July, we're heading, you know, into Q3 and Q4. Um, there was this general consensus like all throughout last year that, oh, the Fed's done here, the Fed's done here, the Fed's done here. But there was really nothing to back up that notion of the Fed is done with QT, the Fed is done with hiking. Th that General that idea in markets was basically just markets getting out ahead of their skis and really hoping that the Fed would stop doing what they were doing because this was really aggressive and it was going against the regime of 2012 or, or 2010 rather all the way up through 2018 when the Fed was at zero interest rates and they were expanding the balance sheet and then from uh, 2020 all the way up through uh, early 2022 when the Fed was at zero interest rates again and they were also expanding the balance sheet again. And that was, you know, infinite bull market party time. The Fed has uh, artificially slammed the cost of capital to zero. Businesses can borrow for nothing. You can refi your house for 2%. I know my dad was stoked about that. Um, you know, at, at the time, of course, I didn't care, right? I didn't pay for the house. Um, still not paying for the house, right? Um, and, uh, you know, it, and this just tremendous misallocation of capital. It's just this huge party. And then the Fed takes away the punch bowl. And then the immediate knee-jerk reaction from everyone is the Fed's going to stop now. The Fed's going to stop now, right? Um, the Fed usually raises their policy interest rates um, in 25 basis point increments because that allows them to have more of a handle on policy, right? And just like, you know, you can arrive at terminal either in two months or over the course of like two years, right? And that's the, the, the Fed chooses the latter usually when it conducts policy because it doesn't want to really disrupt financial markets. But because of the pace of inflation and the fact that the Fed really doesn't have many other tools, right? It decided to hike not just in 50 basis point increments, which is already double the size it normally does, but 75 basis point increments, which is like totally unheard of what the hell is going on. And so that was, that's, that's where markets were at all throughout last year. They were saying the Fed's done here, the Fed's done here, but there really wasn't anything in financial markets that were disruptive or the real economy that was deteriorating to support that idea, right? Uh, you, you know, you can be a rates trader and you could be positioning with Fed funds futures all day long. Um, and you could be saying, yeah, the Fed's going to stop at three and a half. The Fed's going to stop at four. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start buying treasuries here and then you get burned. Um, but if there's no economic deterioration, that's going to warrant the Fed to stop tightening right. liquidity. And if there's no disruption in financial markets, that's going to stop the Fed from tightening liquidity. The Fed won't do it. And what we're experiencing now is actual financial markets disruption that has forced the Fed to, to shift course. And this is probably the highest we'll go in terms of rates. So that's basically what, what's happening right now, boiled down. So you think um, 
just a jump shot here. It's your theory then that this will very likely be the peak rates that we're experiencing right now. You don't think that they'll continue to potentially do 25 basis points and then just band-aid over everything that breaks on the way to kind of, I mean, it kind of accomplishes two goals at once. They can, they can feign that they're fighting inflation while they're also fixing whatever stick and bubblegum shit breaks along the way with special service vehicles that can do whatever they need done. Yeah. You know, the Fed has a million different acronyms, right? With, with all of the letters in the alphabet and the fact that, you know, you could have, I'd say probably up to a five letter acronym, the Fed has an infinite number of liquidity facilities that it can create. And it, it's exactly like you said, it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's a bandaid fix on what's going on. So there are two schools of thought. I'm of the opinion that we are either nearing or at terminal, very much so. The reason being uh, uh, the way that the rates market is pricing this. The rates market isn't pricing what's happening right now as if, well, there's a chance the Fed hikes another full percentage point. The rates market is saying, look, cuts are, cuts are coming. Cuts are coming. And I don't think cuts are coming. But when the rates market is screaming, you know, back off, please stop raising the policy interest rate. You, you know, it's not working anymore. We're not budging. Um, then, you know, it, it's time for the, the Fed to stop. And for perspective, um, the reason I'm saying, oh, the rates market is disagreeing with the Fed, um, each tenor on the US Treasury curve, which is the world's most sort of widely referenced curve, um, it sort of represents a different expectation, right? The reason people trade these things. Um, the front end, specifically the two-year yield, uh, the two-year Treasury note can be thought of as like forward policy rate expectations. And so when forward policy rate expectations fall below the actual policy rate, right? When twos fall below the federal funds rate, then that's basically the market saying, yo, we don't want you, you know, no more hikes, please. And it's fallen almost a full percentage point below the federal funds rate. That hasn't had that level of inversion, I don't think has ever happened. Um, and I'm taking, well, actually, never mind. I, I have the chart in front of me. The last time it inverted by a full percentage point was when the Fed was already cutting in 2007. And then before that, yeah, no, before that in, in the seventies, right? So this barely ever happens. The rates market is screaming the Fed's done. So that's why I think either the Fed's done here or just for posterity's sake, because it, it really wouldn't do anything, uh, hike another 25 basis points in May, just for posterity's sake, right? Just to say like, we've got this, we're not fearful, one more hike, boom. Um, but the reason I'm also thinking that this could be the pause is because the language chosen by Fed speakers in the last uh, FOMC statement, and also what they said today in the last FOMC statement, they basically done like a copy and paste because it's all about managing expectations when it comes to um, US dollar capital markets and in the way that money markets uh, move and flow. They don't want to disrupt them. And one of the ways that they have executed their policy so well is that they always forecast exactly what they're going to do well out in advance. And they try to keep their statements exactly the same as the last time, with just minute, minute changes. And the change in this last one, uh, well, well, for the entire last year, they've said the phrase additional policy, uh, in additional increases in the policy rate will be appropriate. Ongoing increases in the policy rate will be appropriate. And they've now changed that. They've removed that entirely and changed it to additional firming of the policy rate will be appropriate, right? Policy firming. So what does the word firming mean? it means pause, right? They're sort of trying to tacitly usher in the pause without explicitly saying it. And also one of the things that they've done, I mentioned, they say what they're going to do ahead of time. They totally dropped that. They haven't forecasted at all what they intend to do ahead of time. So they're basically leaving it up to the market and also saying that we're going to go on a case-by-case -case basis per se, on a day-to-day -day basis. Because 
we've we've already reached peak fragility where banks are starting to fail, right? right? So sirens going off. And so knowing that the Fed is basically saying, okay, we're ushering in the pause, right? Um, so so that's why I think we we may get 25 in May, but apart from that, it's done. So so terminal is either here or 5.25%. You know, as as I zoom out on kind of the this changing outlook on the Fed's hiking trajectory, you know, another component is just the fact that in their pursuit to tighten conditions, a, a bank crisis certainly helps, I guess you could say, in that it regard. Does. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good chance for us to go back to that because, you know, as you reflect back on this situation, we go back a couple of years and everyone, especially in Bitcoin, is saying they can't do this and they can't do that. And if they do this, something will break. Right. And then pretty much across the board, rates went to places that most of us didn't expect. They went significantly higher than I thought without massive dysfunction. But we have gotten to a point where turns out something did break and a lot of people got caught really off sides. Looks like it may have been mitigated here momentarily. But let's talk high level here about what just happened in the banking sector. And I think maybe even before we kick that off, let's go super basic for someone that wants the 101 of of a synopsis of how fiat banking and fractional reserve banking works. And then, you know, we can get into Silvergate, SVB and Signature and, and what kind of went down. I know that's a big question, but I think it's worth tackling because I think a lot of people sort of are just pretending like they understand these dynamics when they don't. 100%. Yeah. So to start off with explaining how our banking system works, it basically works on a, on a system of fractional reserves. So what that means is that the main engine of the world economy, the main engine of the United States and also global markets by sort of virtue of what the US is doing is by this fractional reserve system. Um, and it's by credit creation, um, which, is crea- which is done through the fractional reserve system. So basically the way that it works really, really boiled, boiled down is if uh, when you go to a bank and you deposit your money, um, they're lending the overwhelming majority of it out, right? Let's say they lend uh, 70% of it, 80% of it out. Um, and that goes the exact same way for all deposits, right? Because the, the assumption is uh, that people aren't going to rush to the bank all at once and, and pull their money out because with FDIC insurance, right? The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insurance, there's this implication that if you've got less than $250,000 in your bank account, you have nothing to worry about. You're fully insured. So there's no reason in the modern era for there to be a bank run. So because of that, banks have the ability to go out and lend out the majority of customers' deposits. And why do they do this? Well, growth, right? You know, We reference it as GDP, but GDP isn't the best measure for growth. Growth is usually measured uh, and it's enabled by credit creation, extending loans to people, right? Not just individuals, but businesses. You know, Capital allocators who want to go out they want to start businesses and they want to generate a positive return on their capital. Uh, and that's what banks do. They write loans, they extend loans to people um, through this fractional reserve system. And it, as a function of those loans outstanding, not all the reserves are held at the bank, which makes these banks particularly fragile when a lot of people come to their window and, and, and clamor for their money back. Uh, because there are a few things. A, it's really difficult to call in all of those loans that you just wrote right then and there. So you can't meet all deposit requests if all of a sudden all depositors come to your window. Um, and the other things that loans that uh, banks do with these deposits, again, they use the majority of these for investment purposes rather than just holding them there because banks are businesses too, 
um, they purchase securities. So banks do these two things. Their assets are either securities or they're loans that they, they write. And unfortunately, uh, in the case of these three bank failures that have just occurred, uh, each of them had to do in, in large part or in small part with uh, the, the risk associated with these securities that they were investing in. They had massive, massive uh, securities portfolios and very small loan books. And that's not what banks usually do. It's usually the inverse. Usually banks have much larger loan books and much smaller securities portfolios. Because if you're diversifying, uh, you know, you're lending to a, a, a construction uh, firm over here. You're lending to uh, a brand new strip mall that's getting built downtown, right? You have this diversification um, of your loan book and you also have uh, different duration of those cash flows, right? So you have you're lending for two years over here, you're lending for ten years over here, um, and you're you know you're getting different streams of cash flows. It's much more diversified, much more safe with different borrowers. But unfortunately, with these three banks that fell, there were different risks associated with the securities that they were holding, uh, and unfortunately, depositors were made very well aware of those risks. And so when they when they stormed uh, and and they had lost uh, a tremendous amount of money as a result of not properly dealing with those risks on those securities. And when depositors rushed for the uh, rushed for the exit and said, I want my money back, well, the banks were forced to sell these securities at a very, very steep loss. Uh, and unfortunately, that, that created a liquidity shortfall, right? If you're taking huge losses on consumer deposits that you're lending out and consumers ask for their money back, you know, you can't make them whole. 50 cents in the dollar, maybe 70 cents in the dollar, baby. And that's basically what happened with all three of these bank failures, um, you know, in, in very, very simplified form. What is up, folks? It's Dan here. And I'm going to take just a quick moment to talk to you about where Josh and I buy our Bitcoin. And that is at Swan Bitcoin. The two of us have now been dollar cost averaging on Swan for years. And here's why. It's user-friendly. The fees are low and transparent. Withdrawals are absolutely free. They offer attentive expert service. And Swan has a full suite of financial services, including an IRA product where you can roll a traditional or a Roth IRA into Bitcoin, Swan Private for high net worth individuals, and coming soon, Swan Vault for collaborative custody. In our view, Swan just gets it. They're focused on Bitcoin only. They provide really solid and ongoing education, and they strongly encourage self-custody. Maybe most importantly, it's low friction. Setting up and accessing a Swan account is so easy that it's boomer and firefighter proof. Keep that stack thick. That's T-H-I-C, no K at the end, at swan.com. So what we just talked, those two, those two topics we just had are very, very much intertwined because the securities that they held happened to be U.S. Treasuries. I think they were 10-year bonds that uh, SVB had. And the reason that they got held or they got caught off sides is because the Fed had been so aggressively raising rates that they actually, you know, at, at the market price of these uh, treasuries was down, what was it, like 25% or in something in that region. So their depositors found out that they were actually underwater with the amount of cash they actually had on reserve. They had to sell some of those. And then the run of the bank ensued after that. So it's directly because of the Fed's aggressive action that this happened in the first place. So it's an interesting interplay between these two uh, systems that are obviously directly related to each other. And this is part of the reason why uh, many people have the thesis that they can't really keep raising rates at the pace and quantity that they have been because this is going to continue to happen, uh, especially to small regional banks. As far as larger banks, um, what is your thought process on what this is going to do to small regional banks or mid-sized regional banks? Because people are going to very likely uh, 
take any amount of money over that $250,000 amount, and they're going to move it to larger banks. How do you see that interplay with small regional banks playing out here? We've actually seen not just from, uh, well, we've seen the largest single week outflow of deposits from smaller regional banks ever. Small bank deposits fell, I'm looking at my screen here, it was 479 uh, billion. So $479 billion in net outflows from small banks. That's huge. That's bad. And that's a huge headwind for uh, not just banks, but also new loan creation. So we talk about how credit growth goes against what the Fed's trying to do with bringing down inflation. This, this the outflow of deposits from banks, that's also a huge headwind for credit creation. And so because of that, it also makes sense why the Fed's pumping the brakes here because bank failures, like you said, Dan, they help with the Fed's mandate a little bit. <laughs> but this, this shouldn't be good for, this won't be good for regional banks whatsoever unless they can use any one of these facilities that the Fed has, has created here. And to some degree, that's actually helping with these outflows because consumers are seeing, okay, the Fed has intervened, right? The word bailout isn't being used. It's being avoided by like the plague. But essentially, it's like this implicit backstop for all depositors uh, for however much money they have, because what the Fed has basically done. And so small regional banks, sure, they will take a hit and some of them will go under and I'll explain which ones will go under in a minute. But what the Fed has done, uh, it has a standing uh, repo facility and repo just means repurchase transaction. Uh, basically, all it is, is if I'm a bank and I want, you know, other banks aren't lending to me, I need money, but for whatever reason, other banks view me as risky, they won't lend to me. I can go to the Fed directly and get money from them. And all I need to do is give them treasuries as collateral and I can get cash. Uh, and usually I get cash at the market value of those treasuries. So let's say like I have a whole bunch of the two year and the two year right now is trading. The two year that I have is trading at 70 cents on the dollar. I go to the Fed, I give them those securities, and then they give me, uh, let's say, 65 cents for all my 70 cent uh, treasuries, right? You know, the, the market price plus a little premium for the risk that they're taking on that I may not uh, be able to pay them back. Um, and then what happens is I repurchase those from them at a later time, right? But that's basically what this is. The, the Fed has this facility, it's called the discount window. Um, and it's, it's been in place for ages. It's been a permanent facility for a while. And it's basically like an emergency loan facility, but people don't use it. And the reason people don't use it is because there's a stigma attached to it, right? Imagine if I'm a bank and I did what I did. I went borrowed from the fed. Well, now everyone knows that I'm distressed, right? I was sort of secretly distressed before, but now everyone knows that, uh oh, Joe's in dire straits because he just got funding from the fed. No one wants to deal with him. And then that sort of creates, you know, more risk for that bank. And, and unfortunately, some banks end up going under as a result of that. And so most people just don't use the discount window. But what the Fed has done is it's created this new facility called BTFP, one letter away from buy the fucking dip. Um, you know, and, <laughs> that was actually, and, and BTFP yeah. doesn't stand for buy the fucking puts either. Actually, quite the opposite. The NASDAQ is in a bull market officially. It rose 20% from its bottom, which is absolutely crazy considering the, the tight financial conditions we're in. But BTFP um, is called the Bank Term Funding Program, just another silly acronym they made. And basically, it's a variation of this discount window mechanism that allows banks to go to the Fed and post their treasuries as collateral and borrow cash against them. But the difference is, there are two differences. One difference is that they can borrow cash at the full par value that those treasuries mature at, right? So my 75 cent, uh, my 75 cent 
two-year that I'm going to the Fed with, I'm a distressed bank, I want to borrow, let's use this BTFP facility instead, I get a full dollar for that. So all losses that I've incurred on my treasury holdings, right, which is what caused Silicon Valley Bank to go under, instead of selling them onto the open market, right, which would be a, a huge boon for yields, it would, it would, it would, it would, it would drive yields to the roof because it'd be all this forced selling of treasuries, which is just a secondary effect. Instead, I can go to the Fed, borrow cash against them, I'm okay. And I can redeem all customer deposits, right? And the, the term right. this facility is one year. And the other, the other difference here is that that stigma that I mentioned with the discount window, that's not present with BTFP. Nobody knows. Destigmatized, yeah. It's totally destigmatized, but also that creates this hidden level of risk in the system because if banks are distracting borrowing from the Fed, there's no way of knowing who they are. And so it's sort of distributed because people won't back away from those distressed banks and they'll continue uh, dealing with them. So that's basically what the, what the Fed's new facility is in a nutshell. And in the interim, banks who don't have treasury or mortgage-backed security collateral to actually go to this facility and, and take cash out, which some smaller regional banks just don't have, uh, don't have treasuries or MBS um, or a sufficient amount of them, they're screwed, right? For lack of a better term. And there's actually one um, today, and it's slipping my mind, but it fell from uh, $50 or, or 30, 35 bucks to, I think, 22 bucks at the end of the day. Reason being, it's a small regional bank with bad capital ratios, and it doesn't have enough treasuries or MBS to go borrow from this Fed's facility. So basically, it's, it's, a, it's a fish in a barrel. It's going to get shot. It's going to die. And in the social media era, everyone knows it. So many regional banks, many small banks will go totally belly up but the BTFP facility does save a lot of a lot of these banks, and it is doing its job to some extent. Um, I'm going to vomit into the mic here for a minute or two because I have a lot of follow-up observations. Um, the first observation is this. If a lot of this went over your head, um, what we've articulated in the last 10 minutes or so is a tremendous amount of centralized fuckery that's going on in the financial system. And when I say that, I don't necessarily say that it's evil or bad, because I think another thing we need to zoom out on is that we don't want the global banking system to implode. I think there are a lot of new Bitcoiners or maybe ill-informed Bitcoiners that don't understand, and we say this on Blue Collar Bitcoin a lot, what a full-blown banking sector unwind looks like for society and it's very ugly and so it's understandable why they're they're doing all these tricks and it makes me think of of carlos are who we talked about before the episode started and he's constantly barking on twitter folks they have so many more tricks in the bag they have so many more spin moves and things that they haven't shown on court yet but they've done in practice and um, this, we're just seeing this unfold on a week by week basis, mm -hmm. not on a month by month or year basis. This shit is on. We're seeing new things get invented on Sunday nights, right, and getting rolled out eight hours later, right? It's crazy, and they have to do this to keep shit intact. Mm -hmm. Another observation I wanted to make, just about banking in general, that I think will resonate with a Bitcoiner. The way I kind of perceive a lot of this, and a lot of truthfully, what's happened in my lifetime is this stuff is centralizing. You've got tons of bank consolidation. You basically have an environment where if you don't have access to the central bank teat, your money's in significant counterparty risk. So it's a, it's a very significant and powerful and troublesome centralizing force in money. And it's another reason why we need to, to work towards systems and protocols that allow for greater decentralization because with centralization comes increased risk. 
The other thing I wanted to say just about the risk that these banks have incurred and and the risk that's in the system in general is two things. We're basically getting into an environment where the way I think about it is that and and actually Alf, who I know is your buddy, was saying this on with Preston, uh, was basically that the 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 Fed is essentially treating treasury bonds like cash, but they aren't cash. Like they are subject to significant duration risk. And that's where inflation is the fly in the ointment. Like it it spoils the whole plan of all the, these gimmicks because as inflation was stickier and more prevalent and significant than they expected, this this hiking cycle went places, as we said earlier, that nobody expected. And that caused tremendous capital losses that nobody expected. And that all goes back to, in my opinion, oh, it turns out you can't just shut down the global economy for two years and face no consequences. Like this is COVID policy finally coming to roost. It's inflation that really is the insidious precipitator of all of what we've seen unfold. Do either of you disagree or have any further thoughts on that? The thing that really bothers me the most about this, I mean, I understand, you know, that if they don't do these things, the shit just shakes itself apart as it's coming through the atmosphere, you know, but these rule changes midstream, these are the kinds of things that cause people who are paying attention to lose faith, to lose trust, to in the longer term. I mean, the, the end game for this, whether it happens in two years or 30 years is the same. I guess, I mean, I would prefer that it happens over a longer period of time. It gives people more time to take cover and protect themselves, but it is akin to just changing the rules of a game midstream. And then guess what? If the new rule doesn't work for you, you're fucked. And if it works for you, great, you win. And this cantillion effect of the rule changes always working for those people, um, being closer to the money, the spigot for the money printer and all of that stuff. It just, it really destabilizes things on a society and a social level. And that's why I think you see a lot of these uprisings happen in a lot of, especially smaller countries, because they get this a much more acute version of this than we do. Um, I wanted to, to actually ask you a little bit about commercial real estate mm. because this, this is something I've heard people r- ruminating about. And I think, did you see how Al- macro Alf tweeted about it? Actually it had a very ne- I, cool original tweet. Yeah, about it. Was it, that it today? looked identical to your chart. It yeah. seemed, yeah. which was really, cr- I, I didn't know that, you know, he, he had those powers. I was aware. I, I thought he lived all the way over in uh, Sicilia or wherever over in Italy, right? He's making pizzas with his grandmama. Or <laughs> I didn't know that he had ESP and he could take a chart that was, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking, but of course he cool. does. He's macro Alf. Yeah, yeah, he he knows everything. Hey, why follow why follow the Twitter accounts that make the content? We could just follow Macro Alf. It's so much simpler. <laughs> exactly, plagiarism can be a wonderful, helpful thing. Um, but I I wanted to actually just make a quick comparison to what happened in 2008, like the the Great Financial Crisis. That was residential real estate. They basically people got balloon payments, got over their heads. They didn't understand, or they did understand, but they thought they could refinance at lower rates. They ended up fucked because the market fell apart. They couldn't sell the house uh, without getting uh, completely off sides financially. They couldn't re-up because the interest rates or they just couldn't qualify for another loan. So they had to just walk away from the house. And then they subsumed the banks because the banks had taken on all these securities that uh, were very exposed to that. And it blew the entire system up. And that's really very similar to what we're seeing in commercial real estate right now. And especially because those loans are generally five to 10 years. At the end of that five to 10 year period, there's a balloon payment and generally commercial uh, companies or people will just 
re-up the loan. Well, right now at seven to eight percent with a balloon payment due, you can't re-up the loan and still be profitable. Right. Um, you can't sell it because a lot of these are office space or some you know space in a mall that nobody wants. You can't sell it and get out of it. So you're basically left with the option to just either let it rot and walk away from it. So it's a very, it, it seems to me a very similar situation that residential real estate was in in 2008. Commercial real estate seems to be in now. Uh, any thoughts on that or further deliberation? That is correct. And I'll, I'll add some more color. You're right in the fact that like th- these spaces are really highly specialized. So it's not like you can sell it to somebody and they can retrofit it immediately, right? This is office space. This is space inside of malls. This is uh, non These are non-standard places. Um, there are a couple of things, right? In 2008, it was uh, it was also a function of not just that rates had had risen and, and there were a tremendous amount of variable rate uh, of variable rate mortgages that were on the market. And so as rates rose, it really decimated a lot of these individuals that were locked into uh, variable rate mortgages when they were very low. As they rose, there was this huge wave of default. Lending standards are much better now, right? So, so people who get loans extended to them, collateral requirements are much better. Uh, you know, background checks are much better. It's not as if people with no income, no job, they can get these loans extended to them at very low variable rates, right? So that's what like lending standards are better, but that doesn't take away from the fact that I was looking at, uh, I was looking at um, uh, CRE, which is a screen on uh, the Bloomberg that basically shows uh, the state of commercial real estate, right? You can see what deals are going on. You can see all the headlines and you can also see uh, the rate at which people have to borrow. And for five to 10 years, it was so for, uh, pl- uh, for an LTV ratio, um, I can't remember the LTV ratios, but, but for example, it was SOFR, which is one of the uh, floating rates that loans get written based off of, plus 600 BIPs. And SOFR right now is like 4.5%, 5%. So that's 10%. 10%. Imagine if you were a real estate developer, right? And for example, there's like this really nice burger joint down the road for me. And they have had three different attachments to their building, right? It's sort of this strip. There's this burger joint at the end. Those attachments have been making for four years. And four years ago, that property developer probably financed the property at 0%, at or near 0%, right? This thing came around during COVID, uh, roughly around that time. So it was two, three years ago, right? And they, they probably financed it you know, at 0% plus 250 bips, right? We need credit, the, you know, the Fed, right? Slam all rates to zero. We need credit creation extended to anyone and everyone. Let's get this thing going. And savvy property developers are like, yeah, that's fantastic. I'm going to lock this in for five years at... 3%, 4%. Fantastic. And they go and build this burger joint. Uh-oh. Now the other three, uh, te- that none of the other three tenants have been filled, right? So it's this empty lot with three empty uh, s- slots and one on the end that's this burger joint. Uh, and in one year, right? You said five to 10 years. In one year, they their loan matures and they have to re-up the loan, right? <laughs> they have to roll that thing over. Uh, and what's happening? Well, vacancies are totally slashing their revenue, right? Why? Because everyone's staying at home. Why on earth would you um, set up a gym in one of those vacant sp- slots on that burger strip, uh, burger joint strip, when you could just get a Peloton, right? Or, or what have you. Why set up office space when you could do remote work, right? And so people are realizing that, yo, this office space is way less utilitarian than I thought it was. I just do this all on the power of this supercomputer I have in my, in my home. As a result of that, all of this stuff was financed very, very low rates, this huge boom in commercial real estate activity. And now that maturity wall is approaching this year 
$93 billion of office debt, $162 billion of total commercial real estate debt. That's burning in my brain because it's terrifying. Uh, and, the next, and then over the next three years, it's $347 billion. That's just what's reported of total commercial real estate debt that's maturing. Well, yeah. vacancies are at an all-time high. So they don't have the revenues for it. They're going to have to roll at a 10% rate. You're going to see defaults, right? You're going to see people not re-upping. They're going to leave the property there. Those assets for will sure. be reclaimed by the bank and sold off. So you're going to see a fire. You're going to see for the banks that can stomach it, you're going to see a fire sale of that now vacant commercial real estate property and the assets. Exactly. And also you're going to see uh, banks that can't sell it because they're selling into a market where nobody's buying. Um, they're going to go under too, which what does that do? Tightens lending even more. And that creates sort of this, this spiral of failures between commercial real estate development and banks. There was a, I found an article, a BNY analyst was saying in 2022, banks, and these are mostly small regional banks that do these types of commercial loans, or they do a heavy 70%. amount of it. So small, right. small US banks hold 70% of commercial real estate loans. That is up from 50% uh, in 2008. Dear God. So the, the, the conjunction here of the bank runs happening to these guys, while at the same time they're holding, you know, uh, what is it? I think it's in 20. Yeah. And so in 2022, they increased their exposure to commercial loans by more than the previous four years combined. And since 2006, yep. uh, the strategist said that they, so these commercial loans make up 24% of all bank loans and the, the majority of that in these small regional banks. So they're getting this pressure from both ends. And that's going to be just a really interesting thing to see how this all plays out. What do you think? We're just shorting all these small regional bank stocks right now, right? I am, yeah. I mean, not not financial advice whatsoever. Um, but uh, but I'm going back and forth with uh, a few buddies of mine who are also involved in markets. I won't name names. And um, day after day, it's another regional bank that's absolutely tanking. And it's pretty simple, right? I wouldn't be in options right now. Options will murder you. The implied volatility is not twenty percent like it should be. It's like seven hundred percent. So <laughs> staying out of options is your friend. But yeah, you know, taking out uh, totally naked shorts in some of these regional bank stocks. Um, you know, not financial advice, of course, but I have I have done pretty well on that. The thing is, is like the the really the dark side of that is you could be completely right. Um, this is like right. a lot of people in 2008 were completely Lepard. right. Lepard. Larry like, exactly. Larry Lepard yeah. comes to mind. Like he was completely right. He was shorting, you know, the stuff that was getting murdered. And then the Fed came or they basically changed the rules mid game and said, oh, you can't short these things anymore. You're you know, we're stopping this and go fuck yourself. Now you lost your money. Like you're, you're just fucked. And it, okay. that's the kind of stuff that just completely, com just completely ruins trust in a system where yeah. you can be completely right. And yet you're wrong because we changed the rules midstream and you can no longer actually deploy capital in a meaningful way because you don't know when you're going to be caught off sides just because of a regulatory rule change. Totally. Kicker is that financial stability is wicked important. It's extremely important. And as much as I hate the fact that we live in an economy in the United States and, and worldwide, where there is a group of 12 people, 12 unelected elders that set the price of money. Elders. Uh, yeah. No, they no you're right. You know, uh, combine their ages. Tribunal. Seven million. Yeah, precisely. Um, it, it, this, this tribunal of uh, dark, shadowy, lurking figures that convene once every month, but sometimes they don't meet. They all wear dark cloaks. They throw dice. It's arcane. <laughs> but the reality is that financial stability is important. And so you know, they're changing the rules to avert Armageddon, but I also hate the fact that they're changing the rules. Bitcoin 2024 is moving to the heart of Bitcoin country, Nashville. Nashville just feels like the proper place for a Bitcoin conference. 
I can't guarantee we will be on main stage, or side stage, or even performing a puppet show. I can't, however, say that we will be hanging out with the plebes, and if we have no obligations, we will very likely be getting drunk. Bitcoin Magazine is introducing a new event this spring, Bitcoin Asia. It's shaping up to be an unmissable experience. Stay tuned for more info. Whether you want to visit Bitcoin Asia or Bitcoin 2024 Nashville, we have a coupon code for you. Use coupon code BCB for 10% off any ticket to either event. That's code BCB. Did, have you guys seen the, this is totally, I mean, this is on topic, but it's wildly sideways. There's a South Park episode where they show, uh, I think it was Board of Fed Governors cutting a chicken's head off and letting its body <laughs> yeah, flop seen, seen onto one. a chessboard of like different <laughs> options for how they're going to make a decision. <laughs> it is wildly apt for this, you know, how this probably goes. Like, cut the chicken's head off and throw it in the ring and see where it lands and we'll make a decision. Guys, here's the deal too. It's that What's scary is that they may not be as much in control as we think. And this real estate discussion kind of uncovers that. Like, if we're just focusing on liquidity in the banking system, they've shown the ability to, to backstop and stabilize the Fed, right? But as we, as we look at bigger credit stress out on the periphery, like that, that's further from that epicenter, right? We're talking about commercial real estate here in particular. They have far less control of that. And the issues are are deep, but they're also wide. And we're kind of it's easy to focus on the the narrow center and think, oh, they have that completely under control. But there's a lot of shit that they wait, can't wait. backstop, right? They can't on they that can't, topic though. What what? Let's just brainstorm here for a second. What could they do? Like, the, let's say this commercial real estate thing does blow its top off. What would be? What do you think, Joe? Like, what would be? You're sitting at the. You're a Fed governor. You've got to make a decision on how the fuck are we going to keep a lid on this. Are we going to start buying commercial real estate? I mean, it, me, wait, wait, before you go, I mean, the, the answers be, in all scenarios, it includes an enormous amount of insertion and a, and a massively growing balance sheet. But I feel For like sure. that gets almost exponentially larger the further you get out. Like the magnitude of what they might have to do from a liquidity insertion perspective is kind of hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. So it's all about, you know, in, in the lead up to 2008, it was exclusively, at least in this instance, like what was fragile before 2008? It was the housing market. That's what exploded. Um, it was a housing market and banks that weren't positioned properly to deal with it and banks that were taking out um, the, you know, banks that, in the case of AIG, writing credit defaults also. So uh, on, on, on these, uh, on these uh, firms and things like that. So in the lead up to 2008, the only thing that was fragile was the housing market. Now, what is fragile? Well, Moral hazard has been passed around for 14 years now. We've had zero, zero interest rate policy for the majority of that time. Now everything's fragile. And so the further you get out from the direct epicenter that the Fed already has, they, they've already shown that they can backstop the banks. They can do that well. They can set up swap. They, they can enhance their weekly swap lines to daily and, and reliquify foreign central foreign banks that are distressed. Um, they can uh, you know, lower the uh, limits to come into their discount window. They say, come on in. They can reliquify banks with ease, but how do you reliquify uh, when businesses start going under? I know, right? How do you how do you actually you can incentivize credit creation with banks? Like if businesses are really stressed, you can say, "Yo, all right, I'm going to buy the assets from this bank. Please, here are a, a trillion dollars more reserves. Go extend credit." But if the banks don't do that, you don't have many tools. What are you going to do? And in the in the 14 years now, it's not just prior to 2008 when just the banks were fragile. Now everybody has leveraged 0% interest rates 
and now everyone's fragile. And so what is the Fed to do? Well, the Fed will probably, um, there has been an extreme falling off the cliff in, the, in terms of demand for commercial mortgage-backed securities. Um, mortgage-backed securities obviously spur uh, uh, loan cre- uh, mortgage creation, right? If there's more demand for mortgage-backed securities, banks are incentivized to go create more loans so they can make more mortgage-backed securities and package them and send them on their way. But the same thing goes with commercial mortgage-backed securities. And so if there's no consumer demand for commercial mortgage-backed securities, and as of right now, there isn't, um, there's only been $40.1 $40. billion in private label uh, uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities that have been created uh, uh, in 2023 thus far. And that's 84.3% lower than it was last year. So consumer demand is nowhere to be found. That means new mortgages will not be extended. That means tighter lending standards for people that want to, for these developers that want to roll. That means the defaults will get worse. And that means that CMBS, uh, you know, sort of shortfall that isn't being made by consumers, that's where the Fed steps in, right? So they step in and they buy these commercial mortgage-backed securities en masse. They buy probably as well these distressed commercial real estate loans. Oh my God. And then we have zombie, and now we have zombie, you know, strip malls now we i mean we do now but like now they are officially zombie strip malls there's like half of the real estate in the united states is just rotting to pieces because it's just sitting on the balance sheet of the fed effectively yeah i mean i mean that's that's chances are that is if if the fed were to directly step into commercial real estate that's an all likely what you see you'd see um the fed creating this massive amount of demand for private label commercial mor- commercial mortgage backed securities it already per- it, it had been purchasing mortgage backed and commercial mortgage backed securities for the last 14 years but it stopped and it might need to begin purchasing private label cmbs to fill that demand so that's what it will do and it will also buy these distressed uh commercial real estate loans from banks if this needs to happen um which will uh, obviously again moral hazard all those losses incurred by banks. Hey, you don't need to go belly up. It's fine. And then also the the commercial real estate developers themselves can sort of live to die another day. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's wild. It's wild to think of the possibilities. I, I mean, I'm assuming you agree just with the. I mean, it's a very basic idea, but that it, it is it is just way harder to control. The, you you outline yeah. how they may do it, but yeah. it's it's a lot harder and more expensive to control these things on the periphery than to say reliquify. The banking sector, right? I mean, it is exactly, and it, it becomes at that point, you know, uh, it, it it's it, think of it like in the, in terms of like a, a nuclear blast. But if you know the cleanup crew per se was only able to deal with the epicenter, what about the fallout that spreads around the entire world, right? And that's that's mm. what the Fed can control. What can it do? It has three tools: it has interest rate monetary policy, uh, it has ba- the balance sheet, and it has. It's big yap. It is for it is forward guidance and and Fed speak. Fed speak has almost stopped working, right? Its balance sheet is now expanding again, and it's still raising rates. So what does it do? It, its tool set is limited. Um, it becomes very difficult, very expensive. What can it do? Helicopter money. In 2020, they went to the point of mailing people checks. I have no doubt that in in the event of a huge deflationary bust, where we see something like CRE go up in smoke, and even potentially something else, you're probably going to see helicopter money 2.0. What that makes me think is that this could, I mean, very potentially very inflationary for certain sectors of the economy. And all at the same time, the deflationary forces it's fighting simultaneously would probably just be status quo and others like commercial real estate probably stays relatively status quo while they rescue the shit out of it, while at the same time printing money to stimulate the economy. The problem that I think they would have in that situation is like they're kind of in a rock and a hard place as yes. far as like fighting inflation here is impossible because we need 
one of a couple of our tools are dead at this point. The only thing we have left is helicopter money. And I just don't see that working out in a long, that can't last long. You know, whenever that type of stuff, stuff that starts to actually happen, that's like Neil Ferguson, you know, when money dies situation. Yeah. Right. And to be clear, that is, you know, right now, like we're not in a situation where helicopter money would totally be, would be at all warranted. Like we're in a spot and I told, I, I somewhat align with Joe, uh, Joe Carlosar here in that, you know, the fed has the ability to, uh, if this credit crunch doesn't extend far beyond banks, which with commercial real estate, the case that I just laid out and that has been more widely making headlines over the last couple of weeks, um, that may very well be the case. Uh, the Fed probably has the ability to continue keeping rates elevated and just get as much juice out of this as possible before they're forced to move in the other direction. And that's right. what they're doing. They realize that inflation is still elevated. In any other case, if inflation was at 2% right now, they would have said, this is terminal, we're done. It would have made yeah. it clear that policy is easy from hands for. But because they're facing high inflation, they're forced to like, you know, uh, put band-aids on the car that's breaking down because it just needed right. to get to the next gas station. So they're putting band-aids on the car. There's one guy out the window that's pouring more gas into it because it just got to get to the next gas station. But by the time inflation normalizes, right, you know, all bets are off for, for what they do in terms of easing. Hmm. Um. How let's talk recession here. Let's pull out the R word. How likely is this? How do you see this playing out? Yes. So the R word. Yeah. Recession. It's uh, it's pretty much it's pretty much guaranteed at this point, right? When the Fed is um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to engineer a slowdown. They're trying to engineer unemployment in order to bring down inflation. That is their policy mandate through and through. That is the the Phillips curve by which they live and die, this inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. Despite there being virtually no correlation between them, even if you like lag inflation back and you push it forward, there is virtually, you, you can't, no matter how you manipulate it and massage the numbers, you can't get anything more than like a zero, negative 0 0.09. It, that's the best I was able to get when running a regression. Uh, on many different time series. So there just literally isn't a correlate, a negative correlation between them anymore. But that's the way the Fed conducts policy. And so it's, it's helpful to realize that that's what the Fed's trying to do. It's trying to slow down the economy. And Fed policy takes 12 to 18 months to actually transmit into the real economy. And you see it begin transmitting into financial markets first. So what we just witnessed with these bank failures that's a preview of what's to come with the severity of the mar the actual real economy downturn that we'll be experiencing here within the next six to nine months, right? That 12 to 18 month lag before it actually hit the Fed policy changes hit the real economy. First hike was back in March. It was a little bit over a year now. And so, you know, June, September, December timeframe, you're going to start to see the downturn. And just as swiftly as it hit the banking sector, it's probably going to hit the, the real economy. You're going to start to see unemployment rise right. more materially. Um, and, and things like that. And you're going to start, start, we're already starting to see the credit crunch move beyond the financial sector and move into things like commercial real estate. And um, recession is pretty much guaranteed at this point, right? With the with the aggressive pace of uh, Fed tightening, right? If you're just to take this to his logical conclusion, bank failures, banks no longer extend credit to people. Uh-oh, you know, businesses are in a fickle situation. They begin laying off employees, right? It's just uh, a recipe for a growth slowdown with what the Fed has done here and and the impact of just total interbank funding freeze, total credit crunch 
in, in in within these banks, that's going to transmit into the real economy relatively shortly here. And from you know uh, also from the standpoint of the yield curve, right? It it provides a whole lot of signal because it is the most liquid fixed income market in the world. You know, uh, it it tells you a lot about expectations because the smartest money. Um, is trading this stuff. Uh, well, not the smartest money, I suppose, but the, the highest uh, amount of very smart money. You can get a lot of signal from it because it's super liquid is what I'm trying to say. And every time the yield curve, uh, it inverts, but when it moves back up towards zero, that's when the recession comes. That's when cuts come. And right now we're seeing the yield curve re-steepen pretty substantially back to that zero lower bound. So um, th at this point in time, it's usually when the Fed's already cutting. But like I said, this time it's different because inflation is elevated. And so now instead of cutting, mm -hmm. they're leaning out the window and putting gas in the car, right? They're doing all these emergency right. liquidity facilities. And so it is a strange, strange situation because at this point in time, you'd already see cuts and you'd already see the economic downturn. But it's, uh, it's sort of a delayed fuse. And it's a delayed fuse as a function of, uh, again, this lag that it takes for policy to transmit. And the fact that the Fed is um, is sort of propping up uh, uh, all of these different areas that are failing with, with new liquidity when and where it can in order to keep raising rates. But long and short of it, yeah, recession is is certainly guaranteed in my view for the within the next six to nine months. Wow. With all of that being said, um, without this being financial advice, obviously you're not telling people what to buy, how to buy, whatever. But what are some actionable ways people can look to protect themselves through this potential looming recession? And just, yeah, basically how, if you're talking to a middle-class blue collar guy, and we get this question a lot at the firehouse, like, what should I do to protect myself? I don't want to lose my ass here. I don't want to be overly exposed to something that's going to just crush me. What is a position besides just like hoarding cash at this point? And, and I know this is a, this is not something we'd ever stick someone to like predict the future for Bitcoin, but how do you think Bitcoin reacts and plays through this whole, uh, recession period of time that we're going to see? Phenomenal questions. First thing I'd say is treasuries. Treasuries are your friend. Front end treasuries are your friend. A lot of people, you know, they hate the idea of bonds. They hate the notion of bonds. I certainly was one of those people, right? Bonds, you think, you know, dude wearing a corduroy suit with um, with pants that are too long. And so he has to roll them up yeah. around the ankles, right? That's what I think of when I hear bonds. I think of mustard colored tie when I hear bonds tape in the middle of glasses, right? But you got to realize that like everybody wants these things. And in times of crisis, that's what people buy. People hoard bonds. And, and, and it's not only that, it's the fact that the rates should predictably start to fall, which should boost the price of these current bonds at the, at the moment. Precisely. So there yeah. is a good reason to be thinking about that. Exactly. And so the front end is your friend here. If you got in, thankfully I did um, a little bit too early, but I really piled into the front end last October when, when twos were at like 5%. Again, you're, you're exactly right. As the yields on those fall, as rates come down, um, predicting these Fed cuts, which they will, right? Moving into the recession, yields will continue falling on the front end. Um, then the, the price obviously appreciates. So you're shielding yourself because obviously it's very deep. It's a very liquid market. The price stands to rise as cuts approach. Um, and also, you know, you're getting 2% uh, on your cash. And so it's a, it's a good way of holding. And, and Alf was right. Um, you know, to give him uh, some credit here. I know he wouldn't give me any credit, but to give him some credit, he was correct in saying that long-end uh, treasuries are are not cash, right? These these 10-year or longer, they're not necessarily cash, but the front end is totally cash, right? Three-month, two-year, super, yeah. super liquid markets. Holding those into this downturn, that's your friend. That's the not financial advice advice that I would I would give people 
from the yield standpoint, from the price appreciation standpoint, and from the fact that there's a whole lot of liquidity, frankly, your money is is better off there than it is in a bank. And from the standpoint of what Bitcoin's going to do, um, you know, I wrote a piece back like last June or July called Bitcoin's First Major Recession. It was a two-part piece. And it went through like Bitcoin's behavior during past Fed hiking cycles. And uh, obviously, you know, this rapid increase in the discount rate, it's bad for risk assets. And Bitcoin was no exception. But when the pause materialized, when the rate pause materialized, Bitcoin, Bitcoin soared. Bitcoin did extremely well until there was a deflationary bust in 2020 uh, that caused all asset prices to fall, including Bitcoin. And so, you know, what will inevitably force the Fed pivot probably will be that sort of deflationary bust, right? If there's no reason for the Fed to back off, like if the economy is functioning perfectly with 5% rates, the Fed will leave them there. No need to normalize. What will eventually force the Fed pivot is some event that is unforeseen that will cause people to sell everything, right? And, and so chances are, as the Fed pause materializes, Bitcoin has been rallying, and I think it will continue to be supported here. Um, as the Fed pause, you know, it draws close, and it may 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 already be here. But as the economic uh, situation worsens and uh, cuts eventually come, cuts are not bullish, uh, right? You know, obviously in in the long term, a zero percent interest rate is great, but the reason for cuts is not bullish, right? This huge impulse of everyone sell everything, absolute Armageddon. That's not bullish, but that's what forces the Fed to cut rates. And so I think a deflationary uh, impulse is probably what will cause uh, the Fed to cut rates when it does. I don't anticipate that that will be soon, but who knows? So Bitcoin will in all likelihood chop around, right? It's been very, very supported at this level. Um, it's been It's seen very healthy legs up rally after rally. And so I think the 20 to 30K range is probably Bitcoin's friend through this uh, period of Fed pause and general uncertainty. Um, of course, it will get dragged up um, as uh, you know other equities uh, do do very well. Um, but ultimately, Bitcoin is a great proxy for global liquidity. And so, if balance sheets continue expanding on net, like it or hate it, right? Bitcoin is Bitcoin is going to do uh, quite well. Um, you know, if central banks around the world, not just in the United States, continue intervening, and, and ultimately there is some sort of pivot back to easing um, or back to just no no longer uh, uh, reducing the balance sheet, Bitcoin stands a benefit. But I do think that it, it all probably ends in a deflationary impulse. So for now, I'd say because of Bitcoin's past performance, the fact that it is a risk asset, the fact that it responds so well to global liquidity, I'll say like 20 to 30K is Bitcoin's friend. I don't foresee any huge risk on catalysts that'll, that'll cause it to, to shoot way beyond that. I think it'll just be supported by this Fed pause where risk assets have rallied historically. And then I think when that deflationary impulse does come, right, Bitcoin, of course, being a good proxy for global liquidity, it won't be safe from that. Where it sells off to, I don't know. But I do know that in terms of catching a falling knife, Bitcoin is uh, uh, has a very low liquidity profile. So chances are the buyers of last resort will will come in and scoop that up and, and recover the price back to you know where it was before, right? So there's going to be tremendous recovery when that deflationary impulse does come. Um, but for the time being, next three, six, nine months, I think it chills out in this area. Very long-winded way of saying that it's going to chop around. Uh, one thing I wanted to say to double back for kind of actionable advice and feel free to agree or disagree. Uh, I think for a lot of people, you know, I, I totally appreciate and agree with what you said about, you know, buying the short end here. But like for a lot of people, that's the, the time frame we're on isn't even what they're on. They're like, what do I do for the next 15 years with my cash flows, right? Like, I don't want to pay any attention. I want to set it and forget it portfolio. I'm not even talking about a year or two years. I'm talking way zoomed out. And I think we don't have a simple answer to that. 
But I think I'm sure the three of us would agree, expect tremendous volatility as this thing really kind of goes through the birthing pains is like Pish likes to say, like the contractions are getting closer and the baby's about to come out because the system's like needs to, to, to birth something new. There's that much pain. Um, expect really significant volatility. So be prepared to chill, be prepared to have massive gains and massive losses. Do your homework and DCA into assets with good long-term potential and don't freak out too much on six month, one year timeframes is a message I would deliver to like somebody that's doesn't understand anything that's been said in this episode, which is completely understandable. Would you agree generally with that sentiment? I'd fully agree. Yes. Um, DCA into assets that have value fundamentally long-term if your time frame is 15 years, none of this should scare you, right? You know, it's just cycle after cycle. This is what happens. Um, things get intense. Things get fragile. Eventually, something forces uh, the, the credit cycle to move back into an upturn, the liquidity cycle to move back into an upturn. So if we're talking 15 years, yes, DCA into assets that have good long-term potential, includes money market funds, that includes uh, value equities, of course, that includes things like Bitcoin that appreciates in an outsized manner as liquidity expands cycle after cycle. Um, and really, in terms of setting it and forget it, forgetting it, money market funds are basically equivalent to cash. DCA into those, DCA into uh, you know value equities. Try not to be speculative, right? If your time frame is 15 years, um, right. you know you can really you can really just DCA for sure. Well said. Um, okay, this is a good one to maybe end on. The system is in. If we're, if we're zooming out the end of a long-term debt cycle, we could say a sovereign debt bubble, a lot of dysfunction, increasing sticks and bubble gum, which we covered on the front half. What are we moving into here in our lifetimes? And like our three lifetimes, what is this system going to look like in 20 or 30 years? How does it repair itself? It seems so dysfunctional. It seems like every intervention to try to create stability is in the long term creating more instability. And the incentives from the previous cycle get reintroduced in the next and everything feels like it's rolling downhill if you zoom out. What the fuck is going to happen here? How is this system going to resolve itself? What's your what's your thesis there? For sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, and I align a lot with Dylan here. Dylan has articulated this tremendously well. Dylan LeClaire, um, he's a good buddy of mine. You know, cycle after cycle, the solution is just expanding the balance sheet, expanding the balance sheet. And also just uh, basically uh, all of the all of the risks and all of the losses that are assumed by actors within the economy and within financial markets, you eventually get a bailout, right? Whether directly or indirectly, whether it's directly to you or two or three stops removed from you, the end game is just the Fed becomes the marginal buyer of everything. And they've proven that cycle after cycle. Um, you know, in, uh, in, in 2008, uh, it was, you know, these, these uh, awful mortgage-backed securities that nobody wanted to purchase. It was moving in and doing joint buyout deals for Bear Stearns, the JP Morgan. It was uh, raising FDIC uh, deposit insurance, um, which obviously had nothing to do with the Fed. But all these different things, basically just putting the, all of the losses that were meant to be incurred by regular players onto the Fed's balance sheet. And through time, right, that, that implicit you know, lifeline just proliferates. The idea that the Fed is going to save us because if they don't, financial system dries up and the world goes into absolute Armageddon right, at, you know, uh, the following day. That's a reality that cycle after cycle, more people are realizing, so they're taking more risk. They're doing things for the virtue of doing them rather than, you know, they're taking out credit um, ra uh, for the virtue of it being really, really cheap 
uh, rather than for actually trying to uh, provide genuine value for a project that they're passionate in, for a business that they really feel can generate a positive real return. And so this is these, this is what happens, right? Cycle after cycle, um, the Fed always intervenes in one way or another. And through time, the Fed becomes more responsible for the, you know, all of liquidity, right? It becomes the marginal buyer of everything. And so if that's the case, right, if the, if the end game is just perpetual uh, debasement, perpetual expansion, uh, perpetual monetary expansion, then you want to hold assets that appreciate in an outsized fashion uh, to that perpetual monetary expansion. And thankfully, we have one. We have one that has an absolute fixed supply. Um, and it's one of the three words that's on the big neon sign behind me. It's Bitcoin. Um, you know, it, it has an absolutely fixed supply, right? It's, and that's never going to change. Uh, and I'd encourage people who may be on the fence about that um, to, to go out and, and read a little bit about what Bitcoin is, why it's so secure, why the rules can't be changed, um, and then figure out how to buy some of it. Um, I think on a, on a 15, 20, 30 year time horizon, as uh, the money keeps uh, getting debased and there's just more liquidity in existence, Bitcoin has proven time and time again just be the best sponge, the most porous sponge for global liquidity. Um, and if the, the case that any one of the three of us have outlined on this episode rings true to you, um, then Bitcoin should, should be uh, a substantial portion of your portfolio uh, moving into the next you know, 30, 40, 50 years time frame. Not financial advice, of course. It's the baby that's coming out. Is what you just said, everybody. Yes. It's crowning. It's crowning right now. It's going to, hopefully it comes out relatively clean. I mean, no pregnancy is clean. Josh and I each have a couple kids, so we've seen a couple. Have you delivered a baby at work yet, Josh, by the way? Uh, no, but I delivered one of mine and I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> yeah, um, I haven't delivered. That's I thought crazy. you were going to ask. I thought you were asking Joe if he's delivered a baby. I was no, like, that's I was a strange just curious. Side I was curious on air. I can't, you know, Dan. I can't say that. I can't say that I have delivered a baby just yet. But one day, um, every every firefighter paramedic delivers a kid or two. I'm surprised. We have what 17 years between the two of us, Josh. And we haven't delivered a baby. Um, I guess we're lucky. I, w- I was I was on the ambulance. We arrived just after the baby was born, so we took it to the hospital. But no, I didn't actually have hands on that slippery baby as it came shooting out yeah well hopefully this bitcoin one comes out pretty clean joe we're reasonably we'll so no c-section hopefully there's always blood but uh hopefully it's minimized that episiotomy you know gotta get an extra stitch in hopefully after this one i think that's my new favorite analogy frankly i think that that is the most creative <laughs> roundabout bitcoin analogy i've heard i stole it from pish who by the way is our next guest um Joe, you killed, man. I learned a lot from you. Super articulate. I just love picking your brain. Uh, very fun discussion. Uh, and I limited myself to one beer, so I was able to track with most of it. So that was a benefit. Give uh, our audience a handoff to you and the Bitcoin layer and everything you, Nick, and the team are up to. Absolutely. Yeah, guys, thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. You know, uh, my, my, my evening was going to consist of just staring at, staring at more charts, and I've done plenty of that today. So um, thank you guys for having me on, uh, put me in last quarter. Uh, hopefully coach will, uh, will see this and, uh, give me a pat on the back. Oh yeah. Give me some, you're, be, you're a starter for sure. Oh yeah. Fantastic. Maybe I'll make more. No doubt. No doubt. You're coming back on whether you like it or not. Dude. Okay. 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 Um, 
but uh, yeah, no, fantastic guys. Thanks again for having me on. You can find me at, at Joe Consorti on Twitter. Um, just the at that you see on screen or in the description. Just ask at first name, last name. Or um, you can Google search the Bitcoin layer behind me. Subscribe to our newsletter. It's a free newsletter that keeps you in the know about everything going on in markets, right? We boil it down very simply um, and we do that for free, right? So if you're looking for free markets analysis, go subscribe to that newsletter uh, or our YouTube channel. Wonderful. Have a great rest of your evening, my friend. Thanks, Joe. Likewise. What a great chat that was, folks. Josh and I are still in disbelief at the amount of poison knowledge Joe has amassed in such short order. If you're enjoying our show, you can seriously assist us in extending our reach by taking a moment out of your day to like, subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, and leave us a review. We're on all Podcast 2.0 apps. Fountain is our go-to app of choice in Bitcoin Value for Value pod streaming. You can literally get paid sats for every minute you listen to our show on Fountain. There is no catch. Find us there. Until next time, stay slippery, my friends. Yeah, 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 yeah.